Would you join me in Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, in your Bible or on your phone in, in chapter 2? And we're going to be reading, we're going to continue reading in just a minute from where Andy um, just took us. If you, if you look at chapter 1, and we, if you were here last week, if you weren't here last week, you don't know this. <clears throat> if you were here last week, you know this, that we've started a, a study walking through the book of Nehemiah. And last week we saw that at the beginning of the book, Nehemiah becomes aware of the condition of Jerusalem, and it tells us that it was in a certain month. Here in chapter 2, it tells us, again, the month when these events happened. So if we put those two together, when we read that, that Nehemiah prayed to the God of the heavens, we're able to put together that he prayed to God for five months. He grappled with God, he had a conversation with God for five months, and the request that he makes of the king, I am going to suggest to you, is the result of that five-month conversation. Now for me, this is one of those moments, and there's, there's a number of them in the Word of God, where I want to, ha I want to get the, the behind-the-scenes look. And I don't know if it's going to matter when I am in heaven, but I imagine in my mind being in heaven and, and finding Nehemiah and saying, Nehemiah, okay, so you found out what happened, and then you prayed for five months. Tell me what that conversation was like with God. Was it kind of like Moses? Oh, man, there's a, real, there's a real serious need for God's people. Send somebody, God. Send somebody that can go take care of that. Raise up somebody in Judea there in Jerusalem to, to fix this problem. I don't know. We're not told, but I imagine that this five-month conversation was a journey that Nehemiah took with the God of the heavens. That he went from, as we saw in chapter one, he is, he is mourning and he is fasting. His heart, do you remember last week? His heart is broken, his heart is humble, and his heart is devoted. But he has to go from there to this request that he makes of the king. I suggest to you that his request of the king is the outcome of that five-month conversation. Let me, let me challenge us with this, with this thought. God sees what he sees from his perspective, and we see what we see from our perspective. Nehemiah's perspective was a good one. Jerusalem is in trouble, and it is overladen with disgrace. Do you remember that? That's what he said last week. That's what he heard from the guy that came and said, you, you just, Nehemiah, the place, just, it's just trouble and there's disgrace. And so he had this perspective. This is not good. This is not what God wants for his people. But he needed to align what he saw with what God saw. Or let me say it this way. When I see, when we see what God sees, then we begin to dream with God. And I think this five-month conversation that Nehemiah is having with God, God is doing a work in his heart. God is doing a work in his heart, and he's aligning perspectives so that what God already knew, God already saw, Nehemiah needs to see as well. And when he sees it, this dream begins to take form in his heart, in his thinking, and in his heart. And it leads to him putting everything on the line and asking the king 
his employer, well, let's be honest, he's a slave to the king. He was deported, he was brought there, and he's serving not by free will, but by compulsion, and he serves at the pleasure of this king, and he already has broken the rules when he allowed himself to be sad, to be uh, something's on his heart in the presence of the king, which was, by the way, not allowed. The king wanted no Debbie Downers in his presence. He didn't want anybody around him in a bad mood. All he wanted was happy, 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 do what I tell you to do, meet my needs, do my bid and call, no sadness. And Nehemiah is in the presence of the king, and the king sees it, the king and the queen. They see that, and then this interaction happens, and he is at a place now where he's going to put it all on the line. See, when we see what God sees, when our perspective is aligned with him, then we begin to dream with God of what could happen, what could be. I did some reflecting this week, and I want to share these, these thoughts with you as I was studying this text. I asked myself, okay, what did God see? <clears throat> what Nehemiah saw, what we see as we read it, is that the temple has been rebuilt, but and worship has begun, and so that's a part of the fulfillment of God's promise, but it wasn't going great. But the reality is the city was a mess. The city was just, the infrastructure was non-existent. Life was just filled with trouble, and there was disgrace on not only the people of God, but I would suggest the reputation of God, his people living the way that they were living. So we see that. We see the, the problems. We see the trouble, the disgrace, but what did God see? God saw a heart in this man, Nehemiah, a heart that was last week, it was broken, it was humble, and it was devoted. God, remember 2, Corinthians, 2 Chronicles 16, 9. We talked about that. Do you remember? Do you know that verse? The eyes of the Lord are roaming. They're looking for someone whose heart is fully devoted. And when he finds that heart that's fully devoted, he moves to show himself strong in that person, through that person. And he saw that in Nehemiah. God saw someone that he could use to make himself known, to restore his reputation, bring glory to his name. God saw a king that was going to serve his purposes. I don't think anybody else saw that. Even Nehemiah shows the, a little bit of like, I'm not sure this is going to work. Everything in his circumstance, everything that he could see, told him the exact opposite. But God saw a king, a king that did not worship Yahweh, the one true living God, and yet God saw a king that would serve his purposes, fulfill his promise to his people. I believe God saw the plan completed. God saw the end. Doesn't God see the end of the journey, the end of the chapter, the end of the, of the moment? That's not necessarily our perspective or what we see, right? God sees the plan completed. He sees the wall rebuilt. God saw a leader that was willing to rise up, one that he could use to serve his people. God saw a man, Nehemiah, living by faith. Here's the challenge. Until we see what God sees, we stay stuck in our trouble and in our disgrace. That's who we are. That's our nature. That's the re one of the results of our sin, is that when we don't see what God sees, all we see is what we see, then we're trapped, we're stuck 
in the trouble and in the, in the, the disgrace. How do I know that's true? Because that's exactly where Jerusalem had been for a long, long time. There's all kinds of, you know there's leaders in Jerusalem? We're going to see that as we walk through Nehemiah. There's other people, there's other leaders in Jerusalem that at any moment could have stepped up and said, hey, this is ridiculous the way we're living. This trouble that we're facing, this disgrace that's on us as the people of God and on the reputation of God. Let's do something about this. Why hadn't that happened? Why hadn't anyone else stepped up and said, hey, what Nehemiah is about to say. Because when we don't see what God sees, all we see is our circumstances, it traps us. We stay stuck. And it's not until we see what God sees that a dream begins to be born in our hearts. A picture of what God can do. Yes, what he can do in me. What he can do through me. What he can do in a set of circumstances, all the walls torn down, Whatever those circumstances are in my marriage, in my family, in my life, all I see is the, the pain and the darkness and the brokenness. When I see what God sees, then a dream begins to form in my heart. God can change this. If I asked you, in a general sense, I don't know all of you, but if I just asked this group, in a general sense, do you believe God can transform lives? We would say, yes, he can. Is he the God of the impossible? Yes, he is. And I could ask several questions like that. And we would say, yes. And then our thoughts would retreat back to our own set of circumstances. And then our answer might be a little different. Because we get stuck there. We see the rubble. We see the brokenness. We see the, the, the present circumstances and we're stuck. It's not until we see what God sees that the dream of what God can do begins to form. When we see what God sees, his plans to begin, they begin to take shape in our minds. And this is one, another where I want to go back and I want to have a conversation with Nehemiah. Nehemiah, I, I want to know when it was. When did it, when did it click in your head? Was it early on, were you an early adopter, a mid-adopter, a late adopter? When did you realize that you were the one that God was going to use to do this? When did this plan begin to, I mean, this is crazy, Nehemiah, that you would go to Artaxerxes, the ruler of that, most of the world, or that part of the world, had unquestioned authority to, to, to order your execution if he didn't like you. And apparently he does like you, things are going well, he doesn't like sad people in his presence, he likes things to be the way that they are, and the way he wants them, and it's happening, and you're doing well in this role, when did you realize God was asking you to throw that all away and step into this moment? When did the plan begin to form in your head? You're going to ask the king to let you have a, an extended leave of absence to go rebuild the wall to restore order and life to a city that your predecessor tore down. We read it last week. Plans begin to take shape in our minds. We begin to see our part in those plans. In church, what happens is the impossible begins to be possible. When we see what God sees. When we see what he sees, we begin to dream with him. So look at verse 9. 
Nehemiah says, I went to the governors of the region. The king had said, yes, you can do that. I went to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates, and I gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent officers of the infantry. He sent security with him, muscle, cavalry, people, on, people from the military on, the, on, on horses. And when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard that someone had come... And mark this in, if you underline your Bible, you mark in the margins, underline this part, to pursue the prosperity of the Israelites, to restore the glory of God, to rebuild hope. Someone had come, and it's shocking that he wouldn't do this because nobody had for a very long time. Someone shows up and says, hey, we care about the people of of this city, and we're going to restore this city to its former glory where the name of Yahweh rests. These are God's people. To pursue the prosperity of the Israelites, there's no question as to what God is about to do, even in those who don't want it to happen. And they were greatly displeased. After I arrived in Jerusalem, and I had been there three days, Nehemiah says, I got up at night. He gets up in the dark, and I took a few men with me. I didn't tell anyone what God had laid on my heart to do. There's the shared dreaming When he finally saw what God saw, he began to dream with God. And so this plan had taken shape, growing out of this dream of what God could do. God had laid on my heart to do this for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the one I was riding. I went out at night through the valley gate towards the serpent's well and the dung gate. These are all parts of the... Um, of the city wall that had once been in place. And they they had purpose, they had functions. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down. I inspected the gates that had been destroyed by fire. And I went onto the fountain gate and the king's pool, but further down it became too narrow for my animal to go through. There was just too much rubble. There was just not a way for me to go. So he changes his direction. I went up by night, still at night, I went up at night by the way of the valley and inspected the wall. I believe the picture here is he's on the outside now. He's inspecting what it looks like on the outside of this broken down wall. And then heading back, I entered through the valley gate and I returned. Now there's a couple of obstacles here that are identified in our text. And here's, here's the thought that I want you to grab onto with, with, with me. Not only when we see what God sees, we begin to dream with him, but when we see what God sees... The obstacles, which are real, the pain is real, the, 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 the things that are standing in the way of what God wants to do are real. And they may feel even, they may seem overwhelming, but when we see what God sees, the obstacles become opportunities. Opportunities for what? Opportunities for God to do what only God can do. So you saw that there's two obstacles here, and I'm I'm sure you heard them. The first one is people, people that are against what God wants to do. In fact, the the two that are mentioned, and a third one's going to be mentioned in just a few verses, these three guys, did you catch their names? Sanballat, the Horonite, he comes from a city that's in Moab, he's likely a descendant of the Moabites. Do you remember the Moabites? They are the enemies of God. They hate everything to do with Yahweh. Tobiah the Ammonite, he seems to be in a, he has some authority. He's in a, 
official with the government connected probably to Syria, and he also is an enemy of God. His people, the Ammonites, want nothing good for the people of God. And then you've got Geshem the Arab, and there's, there's some, outside the Bible, there's some historical records that mention this guy, and so we'll take that at face value. Not the word of God, but there are historical indications that this guy was a leader of a tribe, some Arab tribes, and he had a lot of authority, he had a lot of sway. And if you take these three guys and you look at where they possibly come from, in essence, you have Jerusalem surrounded by these enemies of what God wants to do. And guys, that's a problem. It's a, it's a problem when you want to build a house and you need a permit and the government official doesn't like you. Some of you are smiling because you, you, you know. Or there's some kind of authority, some kind of government authority that doesn't like you people, doesn't like a group of people and has it out. For a group of people is that a real problem it is on a human level that's a very serious challenge and you got three guys that seem to have authority and and we're, we're gonna see a, a, a big section the middle section of Nehemiah is Nehemiah dealing with these guys and all their tactics to try to stop what God wants to do that's a real opportunity that's a real obstacle for Nehemiah you, you already saw a glimpse you're gonna I'm gonna read in just a minute you'll see it consistently from Nehemiah. He sees the obstacle of people as an opportunity to show the glory of God, to show what God can do. Are you with me? Sometimes our biggest struggles are with people. Can we just be real? They might even be in our family. They might be the person we're married to. Come on. I don't think my wife's in here. Is she in here? She's, I think she's with the kids this morning. So I'm good. <laughs> Although this is on video. Sometimes it's the person sitting next to us. Sometimes it's our, our children. It's people we work with. Sometimes it's a neighbor. And, and people, they, 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 they become the obstacle. We see them as the obstacle of what God wants to do. And people are not the enemy. Now people harm us. People hurt us. People sin against us, but they're not the enemy. Who is the enemy? Satan is the enemy, and he has, a, he, has a, he has an army, and he is the enemy. That's the enemy against God and what God wants to do. If we see those people strictly as the obstacle, as the problem, as the enemy, you guys, we're stuck. We're stuck. Nehemiah saw people as an opportunity, and we're going to see it play out as we walk through this book. The other obstacle is their past, and it's a very, has a very physical representation, their past. Everywhere those people went, every, every um, task that they did during the day, they could not escape that everywhere they went there were giant piles of rubble. Every time they walked out of their house, every time they went to the market, every time they went to get water, every time they went to work, every time they went to buy a new cow or whatever, I'm just, I don't know, whatever, every task that they did, everywhere they looked, first of all, there was a missing wall. They were completely exposed to their enemies, completely vulnerable, and everywhere they go, they had, they had to develop new pathways that led them through the rubble. 
Nehemiah found it was impossible to even go to parts of the city because an animal, a horse wouldn't even fit through there. How did those pathways get put in place? You know how they got put in place, don't you? People moved the rubble, they pushed it aside, they created the pathways. You ever seen how when you're out in the woods or in the forest and there's these trails? Who made those trails? Probably animals, right? Animals that created these pathways through the obstacles, through the hills, through whatever, to get to where they needed to go. It's what we do. And so they're past all this brokenness, this reality that they had been, they had been judged by their God because of their sin, and they'd been carried away into, into slavery, and some had been left behind. And now God was beginning to fulfill his promise. The temple had, Zerubbabel and Ezra had come, and the temple had been rebuilt to a functional capacity, and some, some worship had begun. But everywhere they looked, everywhere they turned, their city was a mess, a broken pile of mess. Why? Because of them. I don't know how many of you here this morning would fall into this category, but I'm guessing there's a number of people here this morning that are carrying this giant weight, this chain, if you will, around your neck. And the placard, the card that's attached to that chain is your past. And all you see is the weight. All you see is the op this obstacle. God can never use me. God has nothing good for me. Maybe God's abandoned me. Maybe it's too late. You fill in the blank how you, your thoughts go. But you're wearing this placard that just says, my past. And you put it on every day. You get dressed and you put that chain around your neck. You pick up those weights and you just walk with them. And you adjust your life, your patterns, your choices to making it possible for you to carry the weight and carry your past as you go about your day. That's how those people were living. And it was Nehemiah that showed up, a man who had begun to dream with God, a man who saw what God saw. Instead of an obstacle, the past was not an obstacle, it was an opportunity. How in the world would everyday average people and we'll see it from the top to the bottom, to leaders, to whatever their task, their occupation was, whatever their place in life. How in the world would a group of people like that rebuild a giant wall around their city? They would use their past to do it. They would use the rubble. They would use the piles of obstacles to become the wall that God would build. Are you tracking with me? See, when we see what God sees, these obstacles, and we all have them, and they want, to, they want to trap us, they want to hold us there, these obstacles, when I see what God sees, when I see what's possible, what God can do, what he can restore, yes, even if I was a part of causing the problem and tearing down the wall, when I see what God sees, those obstacles become the opportunities for God to show himself strong in me, in my life, in my marriage, in my family in my church family. This broken down wall was a constant and unavoidable reminder of their past failures as God's people. And Satan, as well as these three enemies, wanted nothing, they, the, the last thing they wanted was for those piles of rubble to be removed and put back into the wall. They wanted the people trapped 
Stepping over the rubble, stepping around the rubble. Everywhere they looked, they were surrounded by rubble. And their lives were filled with and they were dictated by the rubble from their past. What they saw as obstacles, God saw as opportunities. Praise God that Nehemiah was on the same page with God. And that he saw what God saw. And he saw these obstacles as opportunities. Look at verse 16. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. For I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials. Pause. Did you hear what I just read? Let me read that again. I had not yet told the Jews, the people, the priests, the nobles, the officials. Do you, do you hear that? I, I, get, I get frustrated. I get angry sometimes every time I read that. Do, do, do you know why? You with me? Anybody else? Go, wait a minute. There were leaders. There were, there, were, there were priests. There were nobles. There were officials. There were people that were in charge. They were tasked with leading God's people. And the answer is, yes, there were. And yet none of them saw what God saw. I didn't tell these leaders that were here what, what I was doing, even why I had come. So I said to them, here's what I told them. I said, do you see the trouble? Do you see the rubble? Do you see the no security? Do you see the wall? Do you see the mess that we're in? Jerusalem lies in rubbles, <clears throat> in ruins, and its gates have been burned. Tell us something we don't know. Come. Let's come together. Let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall. What a concept. Again, I, I get angry and I get frustrated. Here's all these leaders, and it takes Nehemiah to come and say, I got an idea. Let's rebuild the wall. No one else? It's like, what? It takes someone to see what God sees, to then step up and lead the way towards rebuilding hope, restoring glory, putting back together what we have torn down. You see the trouble we're in? What a mess. Let's build the wall so that we will no longer be a disgrace. Same word as we saw in chapter 1, this disgrace that hangs over us and over the reputation of God. Let's, let's throw off this disgrace. Let's no longer be labeled by this disgrace. And I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and that the king, what he had said to me, guys, Artaxerxes, crazy name, Artaxerxes said that we can rebuild the wall and he'll pay for it. Oh, come on. That doesn't, that doesn't, okay, well, just me all by myself. The government, that, the government that tore down the wall says we'll pay to put it back together. Yeah, well, that's, that's kind of them, right? They said, they said then let's do it. Let's, really? The kings? Yes, let's start rebuilding. And their hands were strengthened. Their hands were strengthened to do the work. Hands that were already there, people already there, everything was already there. But hands that had not, for years, many of these their entire lifetime, hands that had never reached over and picked up a stone and put it back on the wall. Now the people looked at their hands and said, we can do this. What's changed? Well, it says right here, 
The gracious hand of my God has been on me. I'm here, guys, to tell you, I see what God sees, and he's for us. He's with us. He loves us. And with him on our side, we can do this. Well, Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arab heard about this. What did they hear about? They heard about the hands of God's people being strengthened. They heard that there was somebody there seeing this picture of the wall being rebuilt and the glory of God restored, hope being rebuilt in the people of God. And they mocked us and they despised us and they said, what, what is this that you're doing? What do you think you're doing? Really? Are you rebelling against the king? This is going to be the first of many interactions, but in this moment, Nehemiah says, I told them this. I gave them this reply. Listen to this. Don't miss this. He says, the God of the heavens is the one who will grant us success. You ask us, what do we think we're doing? We're not masons. We're not builders. We, I, but you know what? God's going to do this. And we're just his servants. We see what he sees. He has, has made it clear that he, we can, with his help, can rebuild this. And so we're going to start building. You have no share. You have no right. You have no historic claim in Jerusalem. In essence, they're saying your, your motives are, are off. Your motives are not pure. You don't care about us. You don't care about the city. You have no part. You don't understand what's happening. So we're just going to tell you this. God's going to do the impossible. God's going to do what you don't think can happen. When we see what God sees... Not only do we begin to dream with him and we begin to, to, to formulate this plan and not only when we see what he sees that the obstacles become opportunities, but when we see what God sees, he replaces our shame with hope. Amen. He takes the shame that we're carrying, that chain, that weight, and he replaces it with hope. Now hear me. There's, a, there's a details and there's a story and we can get, we can get distracted and... and, and all the details of what's happening. Here's what we can't miss. The hope that is being restored is not the physical wall that's being built around the city. That's the tangible expression. The hope that is replacing the shame is this. God is for us. God is gracious and forgiving. His, his mercies are new every day. And even though we have gotten ourselves in a terrible mess, either we've done it or somebody has done it to us, and we're just living in the rubble, the hope is this, that God is for us, he is on our side, and he will rebuild this wall for his glory and for our benefit. Because we're his people and he keeps his covenants, he keeps his promises to his people. You see, the shame that they're carrying is this disgrace that we're no longer worthy of God. We're no longer his people. God has abandoned us. He's forsaken us. We're on our own. You can, you can say it a hundred different ways, but it was in their thinking and in their hearts every day as they lived their lives until someone shows up on the scene and sees what God sees and says, God is for you. This mantle of shame, lay it down and pick up this mantle of hope. Church, shame is not from God. Conviction is from God. The work of the Holy Spirit is from God. But conviction always has a direction. It always has a direction. Conviction will tell me that I'm wrong going this way. 
Conviction will not say, hey, you're going the wrong way. Okay. No, Kurt, you're still going the wrong way. Okay. Kurt, you're going the wrong way. I know, I know I'm going the wrong Conviction says you're going the wrong way. Start going this way. Turn around and go this way. Stop doing this and start doing that. Stop stealing, Paul says, and instead get a job, earn money, and bless people. Stop putting people down and criticizing, tearing people apart with your mouth, and instead let nothing come out of your mouth except what builds up the person that's hearing your words. Stop doing this, start doing that. Conviction always has a direction. So if you're feeling what you think is from God and it's just telling you that you're a mess, you're broken, you're worthless, you're no good, that is shame and that is from Satan. If you're feeling God saying you're going the wrong way, stop going the way you're going and instead go this way, that's from God. God will say stop stepping over the rubble, stop trying to live your life in the rubble. Instead, let's build back the wall. That's conviction. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, saying stop going that way, Kurt, and start going this way. Conviction always includes direction. Shame will just hold us as prisoners. No future, no movement, no hope. So what is the hope? Can I give you a couple thoughts and I'm wrapping up? What is the hope? You might want to write some of these down if they click with your heart. The hope is that we would be free from the chains of shame. The disgrace would go away and God's grace would be our mantle. The hope is to see the rebuilding, see rebuilding happening where there's only been destruction. The hope is to see the rubble itself become the building material. The hope is to see God's grace once again poured out on his people to know that he's on our side. And some of you need to hear that this morning. You walked in this morning with these chains of shame, this, this past, or maybe it's people in your life, and you, you've adjusted your life to live with the shame. You don't have to. Stop. Put it down. Because in the midst of that shame, you have a loving God that loves you, that is whispering to you, saying, I love you, and I have a better direction for your life. Yes, stop going the way you're going. That's sin, that's rebellion, that's destructive. Stop and go this way. And if we go this way, we find his grace, we find his mercy, we find his forgiveness, and he begins to rebuild hope. Isn't that what we need to hear? Isn't that what we need to know and live in? That God is on our side, that he's a gracious God, and he will tell us to stop and turn around and he will walk with us to once again know that he's on our side. The hope is to see the restoration of God's name and his reputation in his people. There's plenty of, of, of guilt and plain blame to go around on the church, including Crossroads Church, including me. There's plenty of blame. We, we need to own that. And we have drugged God's name through the mud in various ways. And the hope is that he could restore the glory of his name and his reputation in us, on us, and through us to a watching world. The people of God living in a broken down city, everybody laughing at Jehovah. To everybody in the area being afraid, having a fear of God because they see what God can do in and through his broken people. Are you with me? We need to own that. I need to own that. The hope is to see a renewed clarity of, 
of who we are in Christ, our identity, and church, our unity in Christ. John 17, the, the passionate prayer of Jesus Christ, that we would be one. The hope is that we would see hope living here and here. Here and here. Here and here. As God's people. When we see what God sees, hope lives. I want to wrap up this morning. My time is gone, so I'm going to be brief. But drawing our attention to Matthew 28, I spent some time thinking this week on these verses, verses that are very very central to us as a church and our mission to make disciples. And I wrote down this thought. When we live by faith, God opens our eyes to see what he is doing and how he will do it in us and through us to bring about his plans. And as I meditated on Matthew 28, I thought, you know, this, this, this really in that moment must have felt like an overwhelming, unreasonable command. I'm leaving heading back to my father's right hand, now you go make disciples. And I want you to make disciples of all nations. You're plan A, you're the only plan. Go make disciples. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want you to clearly communicate the identity that we have in Christ. And there's gonna be all kinds of other belief systems, all kinds of other ideas, all kinds of other gods, all kinds of other religions, and I want you to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want you to share the gospel of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I want you to teach them. I want you to teach people to obey everything I've commanded you. And guys, I'll be with you. Ladies, I'll be with you until the end of the age. Are you kidding me? I was just getting used to Jesus being around. This has been amazing. It's hard, but man, this has been amazing. And now you're telling me, not only are you leaving, but you're sending us out into this crazy world, this Roman Empire that we, we live under. And you want us to go engage people to know Jesus, know you, Jesus? You want us to empower people to love you? You want us to equip people to obey you? And you want us to encourage one another to trust you no matter what happens? Yes. But as the disciples saw what God saw, this overwhelming, unreasonable command became their life calling. As it should be for you and me. Yes? Would you, uh, I'm gonna invite you just to, we're gonna lower the lights, we're gonna show a video. I invite you to watch this video. It's a video about Jesus telling us this unreasonable, overwhelming command, and that his heart is that we would see what he sees so that this great commission to go becomes our life calling, becomes what we live for. Let's watch this.